If you have a Bible and you want to follow along in it, you can open it up to the book of Philippians, one of the letters of the Apostle Paul, written uh, this one to the church in Philippi. And this morning we're going to be thinking about growth and this principle of life that where there is life, there is growth. That's just an absolute fact of life. We see this every springtime. Uh, when winter's over, if we want to know which of our plants and shrubs or trees survive the winter and is still alive, you can tell because they begin to grow. Because where there's life, there's growth. Right. Uh, everyone in this room, everyone in this room is growing right now. Even the oldest among us. Uh, you may not be getting any taller, but if you're alive, I guarantee you there is growth happening somewhere on your body, even if it's just your fingernails. Okay, Because where there's life, there's growth. That's also true spiritually. That where there is spiritual life, there will be spiritual growth. If you are alive spiritually, you will grow spiritually. And this is why, this is one of the big reasons, why spiritual growth is so important, why it matters. Because it shows that we have spiritual life. Well, what is that? What is spiritual life? What does it mean to have spiritual life? Well, to be alive spiritually means to be alive to God. And there is nothing that matters more than that. I, that is the most important thing it is. That's, that's why we exist. That is our fundamental reason for existing, to be alive to God, to know Him, to love Him, to trust Him, to worship Him, to treasure Him, to live in relationship with Him. Um, that is where true Meaning and significance, and everybody's looking for meaning and significance and satisfaction, and ultimately, we find that in one place, in God, in being alive to God, in, in being in relationship with Him. So, uh, spiritual growth really matters. This is why, as a church, spiritual growth is really important to us, because um, it means if you're growing spiritually, you're alive spiritually, and nothing matters more than that. It matters to God, it matters to us as a church, and really, it ought to matter to you. Spiritual growth ought to really matter. Are you alive to God? Are you alive to God? You say, how would you know? Well, where there's life, there's growth. So are you growing spiritually? Are you growing spiritually? Well, how would you know that? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at in our passage for today, okay, in, in the book of Philippians. In chapter 3, and we're going to be chapter 3, verse 12, down through chapter 4, verse 1. And let me explain what's happening here. Uh, as I said, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to this group of believers in Jesus in a place called Philippi. And in chapter 3, he is, 
he is sharing very personally about, about his own life. And he is saying here in chapter 3, he's talking about how much he wants to know Jesus as deeply as he can. And how much he wants to be the man that God wants him to be as, as fully as he can. He wants to know Christ and he wants to, he wants to be doing and, and, and saying and, and acting exactly the way God wants him to. Or, to say it another way, he really wants to grow spiritually. Okay, so let's pick it up here at verse 12. Let's see what he says about this. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, And now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Yeah, I can't wait. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, did you notice the word mature in verse 15? Did you see that? What does that mean? Well, mature is a growth word. We know that. Uh, that's a word we use to describe somebody who is no longer a child. Whether we're talking, you know, physically, they've grown up, they're no longer a child, or maybe emotionally, socially, they're no longer acting like a child, they're acting like an adult. All right, but here, Paul's not talking about physical or emotional or social maturity. He's talking about spiritual maturity. And what does he mean? What does it mean to be spiritually mature? Well, look what he said about it. He said, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So that's telling us that spiritual maturity includes having a certain viewpoint, having a certain way of looking at things or thinking, a certain perspective, a way of thinking about life, a way of thinking about stuff. And then he says in verse 17... Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. So that tells us spiritual maturity is not just a way of thinking, not just a way, not a viewpoint only. It's a way of living. It's a way of living. According to, he says, a certain pattern. According to a certain example. 
Which means that if you're growing spiritually, this is the pattern you will see in your life. And if you want to grow spiritually, this is the pattern you should follow. Now, I want to just stop for a minute and and ask you to think about the significance of this. Think about the significance that under the direction of God's Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul saw fit to write down and talk about spiritual maturity being about thinking and living according to a certain pattern and that we are told about it. Why are we told about this? Well, clearly we need to know it. We need to know what spiritual maturity looks like and we need to believe. We need to act in certain ways. We need to live in certain ways. And here's what my conclusion is from all that, the, re, the, the fact that we're told this. I think this is really important to grasp. Spiritual maturity doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen without us being engaged. It's not, spiritual growth is not just a passive process that happens to us without us being engaged and involved in it. So if you're not engaged in the process of growing spiritually, it's not happening. And if it's not happening, you need to be concerned. That's a problem. It's a serious problem. Because Paul talks about some people, and if you read through the whole book, you, you find out that these are people who profess to be followers of Jesus. They profess to be believers. And yet they're not living according to the pattern Paul is talking about. And what he says about them is alarming. It's very sobering. He says that these people are not headed where they think they're going. They're not headed toward an eternity of joy. They're headed towards spiritual destruction. And that's why it's really important that you be sure you are growing spiritually. I hope you don't hear, you know, spiritual growth and, you know, and kind of just tune out because it sounds sort of optional, you know, like spiritual growth is just for the spiritual elite, the leaders, you know, the movers and the shakers, but I don't have to be worried about that as if, as if spiritual growth is kind of like, you know, a sunroof on a car. Yeah, it's nice to have. It's great. Love having a sunroof. Maybe not so much in the Pacific Northwest, but if I lived in a sunnier place. Um, You know, having a sunroof. But if I didn't have it, no biggie. I I can still get to where I need to go. That's not it. Spiritual growth is not like a sunroof. Spiritual growth is like an engine and a transmission. If you don't have it, if it's not engaged... You're not getting where you need to go. So this, this is not optional. You absolutely need to care about this. You absolutely need to care about spiritual growth because where there's life, there's growth. Where there's growth, there's life. So what I want to do is I want to look at Paul's example here and use it to give us three questions, each of us to ask ourselves to assess 
our spiritual growth, to assess if we're growing spiritually. Are we actively engaged in growing spiritually? Okay, here are three questions. First question, are you dissatisfied with your current progress? Are you dissatisfied with your current progress? Because Paul was. When Paul thought about his relationship with Christ, when he thought about his, when he thought about his own progress towards spiritual maturity, he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now think about that. This is an apostle. This is the apostle Paul. And as he considers where he's at spiritually, he says, I'm not satisfied. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. I need to press on. Now, we need to think about this for a minute because what does he mean when he says he's not perfect yet? Okay, because we can misunderstand him here. Is he saying, is he saying, you know, I don't know yet that I really have God's approval? I don't really know that, that I'm, uh, you know, that I'm going to make it to heaven. And so I, I just need to keep trying harder to gain God's approval. Is that what he's saying? No, that's absolutely not what he's saying, and we need to make sure we understand that. Um, and here's why we know that. Let me, let me uh, sketch out a few things. First of all, a few verses earlier, In the same passage, in verse 9, he talks about two kinds of righteousness, the kind that he doesn't have and the kind that he does have. And he talks about not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. What he means by that is a righteousness that I somehow gain by my performance, by keeping all the rules in the law by doing exactly what God has said. He says, not that kind of righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So, he's talking about the fact that God's approval, God's approval cannot be achieved by our performance. And he knew that as well as anyone because, man, he, he writes of that clearly again and again and again throughout all of his writings. You cannot achieve God's approval on your life by your performance. You can't. It can't be achieved. It can only be received as a gift from God and we receive it by faith because it's Christ's performance that's the issue. See, there's, there's two ways you can think about being right with God. Whose performance are you counting on to grant you approval with God, to make you right with God? Is it your performance? You can, you know, one of the ways you could ask yourself this is say, well, if I were to die tonight and I were to stand before God and he were to ask me, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And if you'd start listing off all your achievements spiritually, well, I never killed anybody, and I tried to go to church as often as I could, and I read my Bible a lot, and I was in a small group, and whose performance are you depending on at that point? 
yours. You know, the, the only answer you want to have is because Jesus Christ died for me and rose from the dead and all of my hope is in him and his performance and not mine. His performance. So that's Paul's mentality. So when he talks about not being perfect yet, he's not talking about whether or not he's God's got, appro- got God's approval. We know this also because he says in the passage we just read, he wants to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. Okay? Jesus took hold of him. Mark it down. If Jesus takes hold of you, he's got you. All right? He's got a good grip. What's more, in verses 20 through 21, Paul talks about being a citizen of heaven and how he's eagerly awaiting for Jesus to come and transform him. So this is not a guy who's hoping that if he's good enough and he performs well enough, he might just make it to heaven if he can improve himself enough, if he can do enough good things to outweigh the bad things. No, no, no. No, this is someone who's absolutely confident who has hope in a glorious future because Jesus took hold of his life and he knows he's going to be resurrected to eternal life. He just doesn't know when it's going to happen. But it's because of Jesus, not because of himself. Now, here's the thing. This confidence that he has that Christ has taken hold of him, that his sins are forgiven, that he's on his way to this glorious future, this confidence did not make him passive. He's not saying, hey guys, you know what? I'm good. I prayed the prayer. I got the get out of hell free card. So I'm just going to kind of take it easy until Jesus returns and takes me off to heaven. No. In fact, he's saying exactly the opposite of that. He's saying, Jesus has taken hold of me. And because of that, I am pressing on to take hold of everything he has for me. Everything he wants for me. He refuses to be satisfied with where he's at. That is absolutely essential to growing spiritually. A profound sense of dissatisfaction. I'm not there yet. I, I'm not, I haven't done everything that, that Jesus wants me to do. And I'm not, I'm not the person fully yet that Jesus wants me to be. See, if you think you've arrived at some level where now you can just kind of pop it in neutral and coast. And just coast your way into eternity. That's not it. And what you need to do is you need to take God's word like a mirror and you need to look at yourself. Look at how Ephesians 4.13, for example, defines the goal. Look, this is the goal. This is the spiritual maturity goal. Look at this. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. There it is. What is it? Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We used to have in our home this one wall that had all these pencil marks on it as our three sons were growing up. And uh, you'd look at it, 
and you'd see these pencil marks, these lines, and next to each pencil mark, there'd be a name and a date. This was our measurement wall. So periodically, the boys would want to see how they're doing, and so they'd go stand and, you know, we'd take a ruler, and we'd make a little mark and put a date on it. And what, what did each boy want to see? Well, he wanted to see if he was beaten his last mark, and then so they wanted to see progress on the measurement wall, and ultimately what each boy wanted was to reach or surpass the highest mark on the wall, which had a name, Dad. <laughs> they wanted to reach the fullness of the whole measure, the whole measure of the fullness of Dad. In, in height, anyway, okay? The whole measure of the fullness of dad. Well, what is, the, what is the measure of the fullness of spiritual growth? It is to reach the pencil mark labeled Jesus. We're not talking height, though. We're talking character. Think about it. To be as kind as Jesus, to be as loving, as patient, as compassionate, as truthful, as courageous as Jesus. You're not there yet. I'm not there yet. When you measure yourself by that standard, you realize you're not there. So you should be dissatisfied with your current progress. You should be. Second question. Do you refuse to be paralyzed by your past? Do you refuse to be paralyzed by your past? Paul says in verse 13, one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead, I press on. So the one thing is pressing on. But notice to press on, he's got to do something. He's got to forget what's behind. Now, what's he talking about? And how do you even do that? How do you forget what's behind? Okay, he's not talking about just a mental thing, as if you can somehow erase your memories. Um, that's really not even possible, and it's not healthy to just you know try to shove memories down. He's, what he's talking about is letting the past go in the sense of not letting the past keep us from moving forward. Because the past can do that, can it? It really can. We can be paralyzed by bad memories and by good ones. Good ones can paralyze us. We, the good memories can make us smug. And we can think, yeah, I've done some great things for God. That is just so good. I'm just, you know, I've done my share. I've done my share. I worked in the nursery. <laughs> I've done that children's church thing. I've done some great things for God. So I think, really, I, I'm entitled now to just coast. Or, or, good memories can make us all nostalgic. <sighs> Remember how it used to be? Man, it used to be so great in those good old days. I wish we'd do things today the way we used to do things, because that was so great. God blessed us so much then. 
And it becomes this paralysis of looking backwards fondly at our memories and probably embellishing it somewhat and just thinking, you know, I'm just going to focus on that and it keeps us from moving forward. Or bad memories. Bad memories can paralyze us. We remember some epic fail. And we just say, what is the point? Look at, look at this. I tried, I failed, I tried, I failed, I tried, I failed, I tried, I failed. What's the point of trying? And what this is telling us, never look back like that. Never. Don't do that. Never let your past keep you from pursuing what God has before you. It's, it's like we're, you know, we're focused on the past, and God's saying, no, that way. Look forward. Look at what I have for you. Your epic fails do not keep you from being used by God. Look at uh, 1 Timothy 1.16. Paul talks about being the worst of sinners. The worst of sinners. And he says, For that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. How good and bad we've been isn't the issue. It's never the issue. The issue is what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus wants to do in us and through us. Now, that's not to say that there might not be things in your past you need to deal with. You know, if there's some people you need to apologize to or some debts you need to pay or something, that's part of moving forward. The point is just to not let the past paralyze you into doing nothing. Third question. Are you straining forward to where you need to go? Straining forward. What's he doing? This is, a, this is an athletic picture. Okay, so if you watch the Olympics and you saw any of the, the races around the track, what do those runners do when they get to the tape at the end? They always do this. At least I think that's what they do. I've never done it, but they're straining. They want to hit the tape first and win. That's the picture. And it's not the only time Paul's used an athletic metaphor to talk about growing spiritually. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Everyone who competes in the games, like the Olympics, goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly, I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What's the point of the picture? It takes effort. It takes effort. Strain. That's a picture of effort. It takes effort to pursue the prize, but the prize is worth pursuing. We're talking about knowing Jesus as deeply as we can. We're talking about measuring up to, to the fullness of his stature, becoming like him. We're talking about unending joy in his presence. This is a prize so valuable, so glorious, we can hardly even imagine it. Because we get so preoccupied with the present, we don't think nearly enough about the goal, where we're going. We've got to pursue it. If you want to pursue it, it takes disciplined effort. Not to earn it, okay? I want to be really clear about this. 
It's not about earning. Okay, we talk a lot about grace because the Bible talks a lot about grace. We are saved by grace through faith. But what we don't always remember is that grace is not the opposite of effort. It's the opposite of earning. Okay? We never earn anything from God. Never. We don't earn it. But the things God has for us require our engagement and our effort. Paul didn't just wish that he had a deeper knowledge of Christ. He didn't just sit around waiting for it to happen to him. He went after it. He went after it. Well, how do we do that? How do we go after it? I want you to see verse 17. Join with others in following my example. Join, okay, that's effort. That takes initiative. Join with others. Those are not throwaway words. With others. We do it together. We do it together. That is a huge point throughout the whole book of Philippians and all the Bible. Following Jesus is a team effort. A team effort. We do it together. We refuse to be satisfied with where we're at. We refuse to be paralyzed by the past. And we press on together. We do it together. We get into our Bibles together. We pray together. We worship together. We serve together. We, we give ourselves to the fulfillment of the mission Jesus gave us to make disciples of all nations. We do it together. Together. We exercise discipline. We we exercise self-control. We exercise accountability. Together, we grow together. The Bible knows nothing of a mature Christian loner. That person does not exist. God's word is very clear. You cannot become the person God wants you to be by yourself. Which is why we have things like small groups. You knew this was coming. Why? So we can build relationships and partnerships and friendships and grow together. You've got to engage You've got to strain. You've got to have the partnerships you need to do it. Now, are small groups the only way to build those relationships? Of course not. But it's a way, and it's an important way, and it's a convenient way. And so if you're already in a small group, great. We're going to be starting this series, uh, Pressure Points. You need to get your study guides in the back. If you're not yet in a small group, this is the time to sign up and give it a shot and begin to develop those relationships and help one another grow because it matters. It just really does. Okay? You say, well, convenient. That means I'm going to have to do a study. That means I'm going to have to show up at a meeting once a week. That's not convenient. 
straining forward. It takes effort. You're not going to get where God wants you to be without some effort. It just, it doesn't happen. We've got to make the effort. All right? Let's pray. Gracious Father, uh, you have given us life in Jesus Christ, but that, that was not the end. It's really the beginning. It's not, it's not something that we're just to be satisfied with and rest on. It's something that's motivating. You want us to move. You want us to grow. You want us to become the people you want us to become, and you want us to do the things you've called us to do. Lord, we need to grow. And so, will you help us do that? Will you help us look at the example you've given us in Scripture? Will you help us look at Jesus and by the grace that you have poured out upon us, by your Holy Spirit's power, by the, by the partnership we can have with one another, speaking truth into each other's lives and praying for each other and encouraging one another, may we become all that you want us to be. Uh, we know We need that, and so we're asking you to do it. Um, Help us engage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.